I'd like to tell you about every night in the DeWitt house. Every night. This is how it goes. We take the girls, we go up to their bedrooms, they brush their teeth, they do other necessary things, they get into bed, and we tell a story often, we pray with them, give them a kiss, and I get to the door, and I stop, and I ask this question, how much does daddy love you? And they say, so much. Now here's the background on that. Early on, we would do this, and, and I would, you know, kiss, pray with them, kiss them, and say, Daddy loves you so much. Daddy loves you so much. Well, one day, I turned it into a question, and I said, how much does Daddy love you? And right away, so much. And so then the next night, guess what I did? I asked the same question. How much does Daddy love you? So much. And that just kind of became the, the thing. It became the tradition that we do every single night, so much so that if I, would, if I forget to do that and I turn the light out, I close the door, I hear, Daddy! What, what, what? You didn't ask how much you love me. Okay, how much does Daddy love you? So much. And the kind of sense is now everything's good, you know, and they go to sleep. How much does daddy love you? Daddy loves you so much. Our passage today answers the question, how much does daddy love us? Now the daddy here is our heavenly father, but how much does he love us? And how can we be assured that he does? That's where this wonderful text in Romans is going. I only hope to do it some justice today. We have before us Really one of the wonderful passages in Romans. We have many more to come, but this certainly ranks amongst the best. And I simply want to do it some measure of justice in this message. So I'm going to read it. You can follow along in your Bibles. We have it on the screen if you, if you need so. Here is what the Apostle Paul writes. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a, a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God bless his word to us here today. Now here's the general truth. The general truth is assurance of God's forever love. That's what he's trying to communicate. But it comes on the heels of verse 5, chapter 5, in which uh, he's talking about hope. And he says there's a kind of hope that never disappoints. It never ashamed, we're never ashamed of it. What kind of hope is that? It is hope that is based on the love of God being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, verse 5. So what he's saying there is our foundation for all of our hope for the future is based upon the love of God. But now he answers the question, well, how can I know that God loves me? And how can I know how much he loves me? 
And that's now what he is developing here in chapter 5 is an assurance of God's love based on when God loved us. When he loved us. And when in the story, of course, did God love us? Well, he loved us when it was the hardest. He loved us at our worst. And the argument is, if God loved us when it was the hardest, how will he not love us forever now that it's the easiest, now that we are reconciled to him, now that we are children, sons and daughters of God? So that's where we're going here. But the way that he gets to this now is he describes our spiritual condition when God loved us. And he does so with four words. In verse 6, he says, weak. If you have a NASB, it translates it utterly helpless. In verse 6 again, we are ungodly. Verse 8, sinners. Verse 10, enemies. Now, what are these talking about? These is describing you and me, all humanity, as we are born, the natural us, our condition before God, apart from the grace of God. We are weak. We are unable to save ourselves. We are ungodly. That's our spiritual condition before God. We are sinners. That's our moral condition before God. We are enemies. That is our relational position before God. And each of them are begging the question, why then would God love us? If we are weak, if we are unrighteous, if we are at enmity with him, why on earth would God love us? This is kind of like what happens when an unlikely couple seems to be falling in love and the, the girl's girlfriends sort of behind her back whisper to one another, what does she see in him? But enough about Jennifer's friends. <laughs> what is there about him that makes her love him? And we could ask the same thing about the love of God. What is there about us that causes God to love us? Now, the liberal theology answer to that is that we're such wonderful people. Of course he loves us. He couldn't help himself. Let me look at you and I. Look in the mirror. We're so lovable. But the Apostle Paul is saying the opposite. He is not saying that we were lovable as the cause of the love of God that we somehow merited by our moral behavior the love of God, he is actually saying there's nothing in us that merits the love of God. That the love of God is not based upon anything about us that inclined God to love us. He's not trying to convince us that we are better than we think, but rather that we are far worse than we realize. And it's the last one in that list that I'm really going to use as a summary for what he's saying here that God loved us when we were his enemies. That God has enemy love. I've entitled the message that. Enemy love. The amazing enemy love of God. Now how can God's love for his enemies actually be a virtue? Because in our sort of human world, to, to love your enemy, uh, to help your enemy especially in a time of war, is not considered a virtue. We call it treason. I have a definition of treason. This is Article 3 from some official document in the United States. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Or maybe you've heard aiding and abetting the enemy is a common way that treason is explained. 
And we sort of understand that. Like when you're at war with somebody, the goal is not to help them, the goal is to kill them. The goal is to win. The goal is to conquer. But God, towards his enemies, is aiding and abetting his enemies in the most profound ways. Loving his enemies. And how is that not treason for God to aid and abet his sworn enemies, even if that is, is us. And this is where uh, understanding the love of God in the context of God's commitment to his own glory is such a wonderful, rich truth. And I beg you to begin to get it now or you're gonna just blow up when I get to Romans 9. To understand the love of God as an expression of the glory of God and God's allegiance to his own Glory. God is not a country that he is being treasonous towards because he loves us. His allegiance is to his own glory. We talk about this as familiar territory here at Bethel Church, but just to reiterate what I've said a thousand times over the years, Isaiah 48, verse 11, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Here's Ephesians 1. Why did God save us? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Okay, what's that purpose? To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. I just give those as samplings because there are so many verses in the Bible that emphasize why God does what he does. And to realize at the core of who God is, is his own glory and his commitment to expanding, uh, expanding isn't the right word, to unveiling his glory for the praise of his glorious grace, as Ephesians 1 uh, says. Now we have to understand this, or the, Ro the rest of Romans is going to be utterly frustrating. To understand the God-centeredness of God. And when we think about the love of God, I come at this knowing that here in the room, there is so much baggage in understanding the love of God. And there are multiple reasons for this. Part of it is the way that our culture teaches what love is. It is a feeling. It is an emotion. It comes over you like a wave. It is irrepressible. It's inescapable. It's ultimate. But that often doesn't last past the third date or the third diaper, does it? Right? All of a sudden, this wave crashing of love, suddenly, where's it? Gone. It's gone. And the goosebumps gone. Was it love? What is love? As we talk often here, love is self-giving for the good and joy of another. And God is the ultimate example of that love. God's love is so confused also, I think, because of the way that we have preached it, the way that we, that in contemporary evangelical Christian culture in America, we present it, where we basically say, God loves everybody all the time, no matter what you do. It's the love of God. It's the love of God. You have no worries. God loves you. Is that true? Does God love everybody? Yes and no in ways that Romans 9 is going to awkwardly clarify for us. So I want you to begin to realize that I'm, I'm going to 
suggest that the love of God is far more nuanced and complex than any of us understand, myself included, okay? So we're on the, we're like, we're on the cusp of deep waters when we think about what the love of God actually is. So as we talk about God's love, realize that there's more to understand. And passages like this begin to shape a biblical understanding of the love of God. And specifically, how can God's love be expressed towards enemies with saving love and for that not to be a treasonous love? And the answer to that is that God, God's love to us, while we were his enemies, doesn't contradict his own glory. It magnifies it. It doesn't contradict it. It magnifies it. It highlights it. And that is what Paul is celebrating here. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much does daddy love us? What Paul is saying here is to realize when he loved us. When we were weak, at the right time, and that's talking about the helplessness of our situation. It's not so much a chronology like, you know, in time, as it is a theological statement of our need. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, mankind has been dangling by a threat over hell. And we had nothing we could do about it. Can't change our situation. Can't somehow be good enough. Can't make myself righteous. Can't save myself. Nothing that we can do. At the weakest moment, like, you know, two outs in the bottom of the ninth, and, you know, it's, it's a full count, and all, of, you know, nobody on deck. There's nobody that can come to our aid. You know, you're on the one-yard line, and there's one second left, and you're down. And you're the Crown Point Bulldogs, and you're playing the Patriots or something. I mean, I'm trying to get the sense of this, where, like, you have, like, no hope. Right? This, this is not going to Happened. At that moment of pinnacle need, God loved us. God loved us. And he doesn't illustrate this, uh, by the way, with football, but he illustrates it with human nature. And he says, in human nature, do people generally die for other people? Okay, well, maybe you hear about that occasionally. Like if there's a particularly righteous person, he says, that maybe is morally inspiring. Somebody might say, you know, for that person I would give my life. He says maybe even for a good person, this is talking about somebody that maybe has done us good, somebody, a loved one, or somebody that has been, were, uh, been a benefactor of ours. We maybe, maybe you would give your life for somebody like that. But nobody gives their life for enemies. Who does that? Nobody does that. In times of war, it's, you're a hero if you give your life to save a brother in, of ar at arms. But you're a traitor if you help the enemy. Nobody dies for the enemy. We don't give medals of honor for people that helped the enemy. Nobody does that. And that's the extraordinary nature of God's love. He loved us even when we were in a state of enmity with him. Even when we were in rebellion against him. Even when there was nothing, anything at all that somehow merited the love of God. 
We were on the side of darkness. We were aligned not with God, but with Darth Lord Satan. And everything that he is trying to do in rebellion against God, even when we were an enemy of God, God loved us. Really? Well, how did he love us? But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. It's a top five verse in Romans to memorize. I memorized it when I was a boy in Awana in the old King James. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And commendeth isn't a word that we use very much. But it gets at the fact that the translators struggle with the Greek word here. ESV goes with shows. I think NIV is like demonstrate. But both of those don't quite, it's, it's, here's the sense of it. He, he, he demonstrates the reality of it. He proves it. How does God prove that he loves us? When he loved us, while we were sinners, even then, Christ died for us. And so we see the love of God on display when God loved us, while we were still sinners, and how God loved us, Christ dying for us. So friend, realize salvation, the Christian gospel, is not predicated upon any of us somehow making ourselves pretty for God, drumming ourselves up somehow to, to incline God to love us. There is none of that. Misunderstanding that is what leads people maybe in the community. They say, well, I can never go to that church. If I step foot in that church, the, wall, the church would fall down on me. You probably hear that kind of thing. What's behind that? They think they got to be good before they come to church. No. We can't make ourselves good. The gospel is that Jesus died for sinners, and not just kind of like warm, cuddly sinners, the worst kind of sinners, which all of us are. Even then, God loved us. What does God's love accomplish? Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, and please as I read this, notice past, present, or future tense of the verbs here, since therefore now we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, past tense, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, future tense. More than that, we are also rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And what Paul is doing here is he's, he's, he's making an argument. And somebody told me this, and, and I don't know if it's true or not, but somebody told me that for like the first hundred years of Harvard University, they used the book of Romans not to teach theology, but to teach logic. Because Paul is a master logician. And he builds his arguments, one thing meaning this, and if this means that, then this means that. And you see that right here in this text, as he says, because this is true, then this is going to be true. And in each case, what he's doing here now in verses 9, 10, and 11, is he is saying, if God has done this in the past, then he is most certainly going to do this in the future. And you can just read the text there and see how he's saying, this is true, then therefore that is true. And the point is, is that if God has already done the harder thing in the past, we should be confident that he's going to do the easy thing in the future. Okay? He's going to do the easy thing in the future. So let's see what he's done. Let's just walk through this. Since, therefore, we have now been justified 
by his blood. You want to talk about a hard thing? How do you make unrighteous people righteous? How do you make sinners righteous forever? How did God do that? He says, we were justified by his blood. Past tense. That Christ came, incarnated the Son of God. You want to talk about something hard? You make the second person of the Trinity a human being. And to do so through the virgin birth and the miracle of the incarnation. And for Jesus to live that life that he lived. And for him willingly to go to the cross. And for him to die and for God the Father to place on him our guilt. How he did that, I don't know. But he died in our place. And then on the third day to resurrect him again to life by power that God only has. You want to talk about a hard thing. And then on top of that, for there to be a way that Jesus' death could be somehow applied to our account so that God could declare us righteous and promise to treat us that way forever, which is justification. You want to talk about a hard thing, but God has already done that. That's the point. Since we have been justified by his blood, he's already done the hard thing. And if he's done the hard thing in the past, can I look to the future, to the relatively easier thing, and go, well, if he did that, and then he's certainly going to be able to do this. And that's his argument here. Since we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If he can save us from his wrath when we are unrighteous, isn't it easy for him to save us from his wrath now that we are righteous? That's not such a hard thing. Again, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What is harder to save, enemies or friends? I say friends. Hard to save enemies, but he saved us while we were his enemies. Now what are we? Indeed, friends of God, sons and daughters of the most high God. We're his children. If he saved us while we were in rebellion against him, this is not going to be such a hard thing for him to save us forever now that we are his children. Do you see the argument? He's done the hard thing. Now we have the easy things ahead for us. Verse 11, more than that. You hear the language there? More than that, more than that, much more than that, much more than that. That's that logical thing that he's doing here. If God has reconciled us in the past, actually, let me read the verse, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice. We rejoice. Why do we rejoice? When I get what God has done for me, when I understand that he has already done the hardest things, as I look to the future, my eternal future, and my Tuesday, I can presently have joy because I know if he did that, he's going to do this. If he loved me when I was that way, he's going to love me while I'm this way. If he met my ultimate need when I was his enemy, then he's going to meet my temporary needs now that I am his child. And what a wonderful thing that is to be able to look back and to see what God has done and then to look to the future and say, he's going to do it again. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. This is the point. And Christians, we got to be good at the looking back and the looking ahead. Because what we tend to do is just look ahead and all we see is the problems. And all we see is the difficulties that we don't know how we're going to get through it. And we just focus on those things and we despair. We think, oh, it's never going to work out. But wait, how's my hope in the, where does my hope in the future come from? My confidence in what God has done for me in the past. And if he has done that for me in the past, then he can do and he certainly will do it for me in the future. Anybody need that word today? I'm thinking somebody did. Okay, somebody did. This is the joy of the gospel. 
This is what ought to make Christians the most happy people on the planet. Not that we don't have troubles. Man caught me after first service. My wife has cancer. And we're heading for mail, heading to mail. What do you say to somebody like that? I sure hope it works out. We're pulling for you. Or do you say, God loves her. He has always loved her. He always will love her. He's going to meet her needs for the cancer because he met her needs for her sins. And this is what comes, this is Christian joy. In the midst of trouble, in the midst of suffering. Because we know that God's got us covered. He covered, he had us covered when it was hard. This now is the easy stuff for God. So our assurance of future grace and salvation is derived from our confidence in the past love of God for us. My dear brothers and sisters, please listen to me. This is why we all need to grow. Because the more we understand what God has done for us through Jesus in the cross, the deeper our dive into how God accomplished our salvation, the stronger our hope and our confidence will be regarding the future, which we then apply today. If all I know is that Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, which is true. But if that's all that I got, when the troubles of life come, I wilt like a flower. But when I understand the grounding that, I, that my future has in the grace of God and the love of God demonstrated in the death of Christ, hell hath no fury. <laughs> Gates of hell shall not prevail against us because we know that daddy loves us so much and always will. And I just want to encourage you to apply this to your daily fears and the struggles of your life. I don't have some, you know, 10 newfangled ways to deal with the troubles of life. It's the old message that Christ has loved us while we didn't love him. He loved us first, and his love will be there for us forever. And to rest confidently in that is the essence of Christian faith. And this is why I think diving deep on justification is warranted. You know, there are a lot of churches that don't do that. There are a lot of churches that intentionally do the opposite. They keep it light. They keep it happy. They keep it snappy. We're all, you know, we hype it, but we don't go deep. And then what happens when the real struggles come? When all you have is this much? I want us to be a deep church that we might deal with the things that God brings in our path. The more I understand that God has done the big thing in the past, the more confident I can have that he's going to do the, the easier future thing. And it got me thinking as I was preparing this, I got thinking about football season. And I don't know if you knew it or not, but football season is upon us. There's a game tonight, I don't know. Some team up north. So, with the coming of the football season, there is the fresh onslaught of truck commercials. 
truck commercials. I say that because if you watch golf, you maybe not, are not aware that there actually are truck commercials because they never show truck commercials during golf, televised golf events. It's all Mercedes and BMWs, who I don't think make trucks. But if you watch football, it's basically three hours of beer and truck commercials. <laughs> they know their audience, I think. And so you have these fresh truck commercials. And, you know, these commercials are preposterous because they, they have some truck, you know, okay, the latest, greatest truck that they, they show in some remote location, you know, some desert somewhere, you know, some mountain somewhere. And they show the truck in some extreme situation. You know, it's, it's climbing vertically up the back of Mount Kilimanjaro or something like that. You know, it, it's on some lonely highway and it's pulling three semis and a 747 down the, down the road. And if you just looked at that, you would think, well, what difference does that, what relevance is there possibly, could there possibly be that this truck is able to pull three semis and, and a 747 down the road. What relevance is there for the common consumer that this truck can do it? But there's a psychology, isn't there, behind why they do this. Uh, and here's the psychology. You're watching the television and you see that that truck can climb vertically up this insane mountain. And you think to yourself, if it can climb the mountain, I'll bet it'll get, it'll get up my, my driveway. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what they're doing here. If that truck can pull three semis and a 747, I'll bet it can pull the pop-up camper next summer. Won't that be great, honey? Because look what it can do. If it can do that, then it most certainly can do this. And that's Romans 5. That's Romans 5. When you understand that what God has already done, the gospel through Jesus, what he has done is he has done all the heavy lifting. He's done all the heavy pulling. He's done the mind-boggling hard thing already. And how did he do it? Through the death of Jesus on the cross. If he has done that, if he can do that, if he loved us in that well, then I think the love of God can get me up the driveway. I think the love of God can, can meet my needs. I think the love of God is going to be able to handle my new school that I'm going to. I think that the love of God can handle the challenges that I'm having in my parenting. I think the love of God's going to be there to help me in the difficulties of my marriage. I think the love of God is going to be there when I go to Mayo Clinic how can I know that? Because when I was his enemy, he loved me. And now I am a child of God by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. How much more can I be confident that God's love is going to meet my needs and be there for me? So Fred, I want to encourage you to go deep in the gospel. Don't just sort of lightly you know, on the surface, da, 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 da. go deep in the gospel. Think seriously about what God did in saving you, a sinner, in your helpless condition. And let the confidence that he has done the hard thing 
give you assurance that he is going to help you with the relatively easy thing. And for you to know confidently that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he loves you so much. So much. All praise be to him. All praise be to him. Amen.